Good morning. We'll be in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. I'd encourage you, even if you wouldn't like to, to go ahead and turn there. If you're a visitor with us this morning, um, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, we have some cards in the backs of the pews. Pews. Do you hear what I just said? <laughs> Woo. Been a while since I made that announcement. Um, yeah, we have cards in the backs of the chairs, the seats, and that's a way just for us to um, get in touch with you. And if you want to know more about small groups and things that are going on um, you know, on the schedule and what it means to be a part of a, of a body, we'd really uh, love the opportunity to talk to you about that. And so we encourage you to fill that out. You can put it in the little offering satchel uh, as it comes by or leave it in your seat and someone will get it. Um, but we encourage you to do that because we, when you visit somewhere and when you're looking for a church home or if, if you're a part of a church home, we know each other. We have unity in Christ and we take seriously the call to walk together in the things that we're um, going through. And so we encourage you to do that. So welcome. Uh, let's pray and then we will dig into the sermon. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for this morning. I thank you that... Um, we have the sweet, sweet privilege of gathering and um, having perfect unity in Christ and raising our voices in song, knowing that our God is near, knowing that we have the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to continue in worship as we go through the sermon portion of our corporate worship. I pray that you would help us to, um, to work hard as we look at texts and as we look at your design for things, and I pray that we would look at our lives and see um, if it's lining up or, or if it's not lining up. Lord, we pray uh, just in general for our city government, just that um, they would make decisions uh, that are pleasing to you and, and good for the people. We also pray for a local church, Emmanuel Missionary Baptist, and pray for um, Pastor Bobby Sparks over there. I pray for, first, his, his marriage. Um, that it is flourishing, that they are enjoying you together, and that ministry isn't taking away from marriage. I pray that uh, their family is walking closely with you and that that fuels his time uh, ministering to the body. Uh, I pray for that church, that you would um, be with them and speak to them this morning as they talk about grumbling. Uh, I pray that you would bless their time together and they would really enjoy you. Lord, as we talk about some very familiar terms this morning, um, help us to do whatever wrestling we need to, to understand forgiveness and repentance and the gospel. Lord, I count it a sweet privilege uh, to be called one of your children. And I pray that um, you would use me as you see fit this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is part seven of an eight-part sermon series titled A House Dedicated. Now, if you're paying attention, you're thinking, didn't he say a seven-part series last week? They have a tendency to do that as we move along in a sermon series to kind of grow over time. And so uh, Ben will be preaching the final um, part eight of this sermon series. And this week, we're going to be looking at part seven. We'll be considering Solomon's seventh appeal in prayer, in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. So this is Solomon's seventh appeal in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. And the seventh appeal is for forgiveness for the repentant. That's the seventh appeal, forgiveness for the repentant. 
Before we dive into the text, you may remember that we engaged this a few weeks ago. We engaged forgiveness and repentance a few weeks back in Solomon's prayer. And on that week, we had some very challenging and very fruitful discussion in our small groups. I want to encourage you, if you're not a part of a small group, these, these messages, you don't just hear them and forget them. Our hope is that we are walking in the Word, that, that we are hearing it and heeding it and walking in it. And so a lot of that takes place in just life-on-life relationships. And some of the structure that we've put to that is small groups. And I want to encourage you, if you have questions, like when, when a man stands up here and preaches a sermon, I, like we never preach and say, well... Nobody should have any questions after that one. Really nailed it. Ball out of the park. Uh, I would expect lots of questions from, from today's sermon, particularly. So, I encourage you, as we go through this, write those down. Take them to small group. Engage another family. Talk to us uh, so that we can work through these things together. <clears throat> so, we have engaged this previously, and you may be thinking, well, do they have some sort of a soapbox? Why all this talk about forgiveness and repentance? And the answer to that question is the text itself. That is what the text does. And at Crosspoint, we feel it's best to preach expositionally. We just go to the next verse or the next set of verses. As Solomon's prayer began a conversation about forgiveness, it now continues that conversation. And so in our preaching, we're going to follow suit. So look with me at verses 36 through 39, and we're going to read them aloud in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. If they sin against you, now they are the Israelites. Solomon is praying about the people that he's over, and and he's praying for the Israelites. Um, And this is the seventh appeal. If they, the Israelites, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet... If they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind, with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. There are three parts to this portion of the prayer. There's three parts to the seventh appeal, and I think that they make a nice outline for our purposes this morning. And so the three sections that we're going to look at are the if, the yet, and the then. The if, the yet, and the then. So first the if in verse 36 If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. That's the if. Solomon is praying for Israel's future relationship with God, even after they've sinned against him. As I engage this, I found that to be pretty complex. I don't know that I have ever prayed to God about my or my children's future sins and how we respond after we've sinned against God. I mean, that's a person who is serious about their relationship with God. God, next month... If I show unbelief and a lack of faith, when I do that, I pray that I would repent. And if my children do, I pray that they would repent. And when they do, I pray for for forgiveness. I mean, he is serious about the relationship that the people of God are called to have with their God. I don't know that I pray like that, but when I see texts like this, I'm encouraged to pray like that, to have that level of seriousness in engaging our God in relationship. 
fitting to do that because we are all sinners. I would ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that we are all sinners? Today we're considering what it means to forgive and to be forgiven, and the first thing we consider is that we are all sinners. Sinning against God is inevitable, and the first step toward forgiveness is realizing what you've done and confessing it. So, turn to 1 John with me. Keep your finger in 2 Chronicles because we're going to be going back to that after every passage we turn to. So, 1 John, it's toward the back of your Bibles. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. We are all sinners. We cannot even begin to talk about forgiveness until this is very, very clearly established. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 in 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is where we see that even repentance itself is a grace of God. I see my sin for what it is because God has put truth into me so that I might not deceive myself. If his word is in us, we will see ourselves as sinners. As we're talking about forgiveness, we have to know if his word is in us, we will see ourselves as sinners. And I would warn you this morning that if you do not see yourself as a sinner, God's word is not in you. And I would urge you to listen very, very closely because that is one of the most important things for you to understand. Turn back to 2 Chronicles 6.36. Look at this scenario. Now, Solomon's praying, and in his prayer, he prays a scenario. Um, sometimes uh, I get, when I'm praying, I get distracted and go into, so if this happens and then that happens and if this happens, um, he's not distracted here. He's very, very focused. And he's praying about a scenario that could take place because of the sin of the people. So look at, look at what he describes in the next part of verse 36. It says, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you, God, are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to a land far or near. That's the result. So first, I want us to see God is angry. That's important for us to see. God is angry. Um, oftentimes, it's very uncomfortable for us to talk about the wrath of God because we think, well, isn't God love? Why do we got to go talk about his anger, talk about his wrath? The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. The way that Israel acts in this chapter is in a way that suppresses the truth about God. And so that's where God's wrath is aimed, towards unrighteousness. That's why we're called to repent of our unrighteousness. So here, what we're seeing is that God is angry. This is why the wages of sin is death. Any sin, the smallest sin you can imagine, the wages of sin is death. God is not indifferent toward your sin, and his anger is a product of his holiness. He doesn't set holiness aside for a moment to show his anger and his wrath. His anger, his wrath is a part of his holiness and an expression of it. And in this circumstance, the result is being given over to the enemy and held captive in the enemy's kingdom. Last week, we defined the enemy as anyone who sets themselves against God by setting themselves against God's people who he is carrying his will out through. And we're supposed to be battling against the enemy. 
I mean, remember last week we talked about that. I wanted to preach in a kilt and paint my face. We're supposed to be battling against the enemy. We're supposed to take it very, very seriously. We're to battle against the enemy. But here, God's people have sinned against God and in a way have sided with the enemy. That's what's happened here. In a way, they've sided with the enemy. But they did not make friends. They came under the enemy's harsh rule. Why is it harsh? Well, because the enemy is godless. Harsh ruling is a... Is a uh, uh, product of, of godlessness. If you're being harsh in your life, think, am, am, am I staying in step with, with God here? So they didn't make friends, but they came under the harsh rule. So what I want us to do this morning, picture the people of God. Picture the people of God being held captive in a foreign land. What would they have known while they're being held captive? They would have known that God drew them out as a people who were supposed to be different from every other nation. They would have known that while they're being held captive. They also would have known that they were called to be holy as God's personal possession. They also would have known that God had promised that if they obeyed, they would exercise certain dominion over their enemies. Yet, here they are imprisoned. Imprisoned. Like part of me thought, I want to, has anyone ever been in prison? But I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to do that. Um, not, not, not a good feeling. There's not a lot of f- feeling of freedom uh, in prison. Imprisoned by the enemy. Captives who were once free, now being ruled over by the enemy they were supposed to be battling against. And all of this because of what? Because of their sin. All of this because of their sin. Now what? That's where we're at in the prayer, in Solomon's prayer. So now what? We've sinned, being held captive by the enemy. Now what? Before we answer that question, I want to ask you, have you ever found yourself in that position, realizing your sin, your sin against God, and the horrible consequences that have resulted? Some of us may need to consider that some of our undesirable circumstances may very well be the result of sin. This is not always the case, but it is sometimes the case, and we're called to keep a close watch on our lives, so it's something to consider. So we get to the question, so now what? I'm a sinner being ruled by my sin and its consequences. And this brings us to the next verse. Now now what do I do? I'm imprisoned by my sin. What do I do? And verses 37 through 38 give us our answer. Look at verse 37. Yet, this is the second part, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind, with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land, which God gave to their fathers, the city you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Yet, I'm so thankful that there is a yet in this verse. Because if it was just you sinned against God's people, well, boom, boom. You're held captive by the enemy. Sin's ruling over you, that's the consequence. And we're we're left with nothing. But so, so good that there's a yet here. Yet, what are the details? If you sin yet, turn your heart. Repent. Plead. Confess. With all your mind, with all your heart, praying reorienting yourself toward God and his people. Repentance is not a half-hearted endeavor. We, we cannot skip over the part about repentance because look at all that it says about what it is. It is not a half-hearted endeavor. The Israelite being held captive in the foreign land would be expected to do some very, very real self-evaluation. 
very, very real soul searching. With my heart and with my mind, am I really turning from this sin? Like, am I going to sit down in my sin and, and with my mind say, okay, what have I done to wrong God? How have I wronged God? What are the specific details and how I've wronged God? And do I believe in my heart that it would be best to truly turn from those things toward God and back toward his people? The, the Israelite held captive would have been required to do some very, very real soul searching. Asking questions like, or do I just dislike my consequences? Is, is captivity just a bummer and I don't want to be here anymore? Or am I sincerely troubled at how my sin has separated me from God and his people? Because it does both. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from his people. I find it troubling as I look at the sincerity and the repentance in this, in this chapter. I find it troubling when we have a lot of talk of repentance with, without any sign of pleading I was deeply convicted this week as, as I engaged this text. When we talk about repentance, and we're a repentant people because we want to be a forgiven people, but there's no sign of pleading with God. I asked myself as I prepared this sermon, and I ask you, when is the last time that you pled with God about your sin, eager to be restored in true repentance and forgiveness? When is the last time you went to the Lord and said, Lord, this thing is ruling over me? This, the, the flesh, uh, anger, discontentment, anxiety, uh, lust, covetousness, um, doubt, unbelief, these things are ruling over me, and I do not want to keep moving in them. I know that when I sin, I think that's going to make me happy, but Lord, I know, I know that it will make me miserable. And Lord, please, please help me to be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that I can be your child who rightly represents you. Do we plead with God? I don't plead with God enough about my sin. And I would encourage you to ask if you do. Because sincerity in this repentance includes a pleading in our prayers. A pleading. We must be thorough in our confessions and we must be sincere in our repentance. However, all of that sincerity doesn't earn forgiveness. Hear that, hear that for what I, I, yes, I just said that. All of that sincerity, the deepest, most heartfelt repentance, does not earn you forgiveness. This is very important. Nobody is ever deserving of grace. That's why it's called grace. Grace is being given what you don't deserve. If I have done something to deserve it, it's not grace. It's what I deserve. So, nobody's ever deserving of forgiveness, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I do not earn forgiveness through repentance. I want you all to hear that. I do not earn forgiveness through repentance. That would be works-based salvation. All I got to do is try real hard to repent, and bam, God, you owe me some forgiveness. No, no, no. We do not earn forgiveness through repentance. What we need to see is that even when we repent, forgiveness is still grace. Forgiveness from a holy God is still grace. We are still being given what we do not deserve. I am no more deserving of forgiveness after I repent than I was before I repented. I, I, I'm expecting that's going to make some of you bristle. Like when I wrote it down, I was like, oh, I don't know if I like that. What? Am I going to say that in front of a bunch of people who, 
who have a good aim at me and could throw shoes and things, like that's pretty, pretty big deal. I am no more deserving of forgiveness after I repent than I was before I repented. However, I am more ready for forgiveness. Let's consider what that means, because this can get pretty dicey. This can get very dicey very quickly, and I urge you, if you're thinking, man, this has not been very uplifting. So far, I deserve nothing good, and, and I don't know if I'm really repentant, and I don't know if I'm pleading. I want to urge you to hang in there, because we're going to do some gymnastics, because we have to. We have to work hard to not gymnastics like in a deceitful way, but to gymnastics, going to the Word and seeing what it says. This can get dicey if we're not careful. Verse 39, if God's people sin against God and yet they confess and repent, look at what verse 39 says. If God's people sin against God, yet they confess and repent, verse 39 says this, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. We have to notice the text does not say we don't see Solomon on the platform, hands raised to God saying, God, if your people sin, forgive them. That is horribly presumptuous. If your people sin, forgive them. No, no, that's not what it says. It says, if they sin and they repent, then forgive them. Repentance precedes forgiveness. If you're writing notes down, that would be something to write down. Repentance precedes forgiveness. Ben had a definition that he shared, and I find it to be very true to the text, so I'm going to use it this morning. And what we're seeing in this text is that grace is not forgiving the unrepentant. That's not grace. I wouldn't even say that's friendly. Grace is not forgiving the unrepentant. Rather, grace is forgiving the repentant even 70 times 7. Grace is forgiving the repentant even 70 times seven, hundreds and hundreds of times. That's what grace is. I have struggled with this. I want you all to know the guy preaching this sermon. Like when I, when I came across it, um, I thought, okay, well, I got to struggle through this. I got to work through this. I grew up in a church uh, where as far back as I can remember, I was taught that we forgive 70 times seven, Period. That's what I was taught. And what was ingrained into my brain was that if I ever withhold forgiveness, it is a sin. That's how I was brought up. That's what I remember from what I was taught. Withholding forgiveness equals sin. That's where my brain goes. Don't withhold forgiveness. It equals sin all the time. But I'm seeing that there, that is not the case all the time in this verse. I struggled with this. So you can imagine my concern being brought up in such a manner when I came to this text and saw the implication that forgiveness is not granted to the unrepentant. That is when it is withheld. Forgiveness is not granted to the unrepentant. That is, that is when it is withheld. And, and I thought back and I said, have I practiced this rightly throughout my life? Did I get in the way of someone's repentance because I didn't expect it of them or encourage them in it? And I would ask you, have you practiced this rightly throughout your life, or are there some changes that may need to be made so that we can be more in step with the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God? This is concerning and hard because Colossians 3.13, don't turn there, but listen, Colossians 3.13 says that we're called to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven. Colossians 3.13 says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven. 
So we don't just forgive, but we forgive the way that God forgives. And this passage seems to indicate that he forgives the repentant, not the unrepentant. So the logical conclusion is that if we forgive the way God forgives, we must be careful of two things. Please don't miss either of them. We must be careful not to grant forgiveness to an unrepentant person, and we must be just as careful not to withhold forgiveness from a truly repentant person. Two very, very important things for the believer to walk in. When I run across something like this in the text that challenges me in such a manner, stay with me. I'm seeing some spouses say, huh, what? When I see things in the text that challenge me in such a manner, I ask a few questions, and they may be questions you're asking right now in your head. Um, are there other texts that communicate the same thing? Are there any texts that seem to communicate the opposite? And how can I make sure not to build a doctrine or an ology off of one single text? How can I make sure to do that? So I, what, what I want to do for the next few minutes is let you kind of walk with me through how I wrestled through this text. And the first place I went was Matthew 6, 15. So turn with me. Keep your finger in Second Chronicles. We'll be going back to it. But Matthew 6, 15. And oh, these satellite verses are so important. The word proves itself. We, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable so that we can be equipped for every good work that God has called us to. And it's so good to go to other parts of the word and see how it proves itself and how it makes itself more clear. And Matthew 6.15 is where we're gonna start. Matthew 6.15 says this. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is absolutely huge. Do you hear what God just said? We must heed this soberly. If you don't forgive other people, God's not gonna forgive you. You hear that? As I'm talking about the possibility in scripture of us having to withhold forgiveness with the unrepentant, you also need to hear along with that this very, very sober warning. If you don't forgive other people, God will not forgive you. That's sobering. We must, must, must be a forgiving people. If we harden our hearts and we find ourselves to be unforgiving, it will be the demise of our souls. We cannot refuse forgiveness where it is supposed to be granted. Our very souls are at stake if we do. The repentant are forgiven, and according to this verse, the repentant forgive. Do y'all hear that? The repentant are forgiven every single time, and the repentant are people who forgive. That's what this verse is saying. If you don't forgive the repentant, you only prove that you, you yourself are not repentant. You see what the verse does? It kind of goes in a circle. God says, you have to forgive the repentant, but if you don't, I don't forgive you. Do you know why? Because you're not repentant, and our God doesn't forgive unrepentant people. He says it right here. You don't forgive the repentant, I don't forgive you. It's a very, very sober warning, and it proves what we're looking at this morning. This is why you might consider why unrepentant people are oftentimes unforgiving people. When I'm steeped in my own sin, I'm being stubborn and hard-hearted, I'm not the most forgiving person. Generally, if, if I'm not repentant in something, 
Other people's sin just makes me mad and frustrated. That ever happened to you? You're struggling with your own sin and you're not to the point of repentance and someone else sins and you're just completely annoyed by them, frustrated, angry. How could they do that? Not even close to wanting to grant forgiveness. Yet, truly repentant people are far more forgiving than they were when they were unrepentant. When you see that person who is being hard-hearted and stubborn, and they say, you know what, I'm gonna confess what I've done, I'm gonna repent from my sin, that person often has a big change in their attitude and a big change in their approach to sin in other people's lives, and they will forgive them. They'll be ready for it, they'll be eager for it. When you experience forgiveness from a perfectly holy God, you will be eager to forgive others who are truly repentant. You'll see how sweet and important that repentant is. You'll, you'll know it. When you see someone repent, you'll be like, I've been there, and I I'm eager to be reunited with you in our walk with Christ. It is in keeping with your own repentance to forgive the repentant. Forgiveness, in fact, will be the fruit of your repentance. Turn over to Luke 17. Luke 17, we're gonna look at verses three through four. So, as we look at this, do not forget the warning that God just gave us. If you don't forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We're gonna look at verses three and four in Luke chapter 17, and they say this. Pay attention to yourselves, exclamation point. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Must. Again, notice it does not say, if your brother sins, forgive him. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuking someone you love is never fun. And it has all the possibilities in the world to be awkward and uncomfortable. In fact, God even addresses those possibilities of the circumstance in Scripture. I'm a young pastor. Do you know what the Bible says to me about engaging an older man in his sin or, or, or saying, um, or rebuking, or admonishing, or warning an older man. The Bible says, you be careful, young man. And as you address an older man, it, it doesn't matter if you're an elder. You address an older man, you do so with the respect that you would address your own father. That's what the Bible says. Because when you're rebuking someone, there's all kinds of possibilities for misunderstanding and difficulty in our communication and, and, and splintering in the relationship. So the, God knows that, and he has addressed things in the Bible. You, you do it in this way. You give a reason for the hope you have with gentleness and respect. You be bold and firm, but don't do it without love. And, and be looking for that repentance, because if you withhold forgiveness, I'm not gonna forgive you. God's very detailed about how we move in these things. But we rebuke for sin because we want to convince of sin. You don't rebuke someone because you're mad at them. A lot of times, that's kind of the way we function. Oh, you're going to sin against me? Well, guess what? Rebuke. It's not how we move. We rebuke for sin because our hope is that we will be convincing them of sin, of the sin that they have in their lives. If someone rebukes you, their hope should be, I want you to see the sin that you're clearly not seeing on your own. That's why we rebuke. That's one reason that God has given you the relationship in the first place. If we don't rebuke someone that we love when they sin, we're really no better than their enemy. 
You're just going to let them go on in the thing that could be a detriment to their souls? We rebuke because we love them. I want you to consider, this is crazy, I want you to consider the direct definition of rebuke from the concordance. I'm not real big on reading directly from the concordance um, because I'm not that smart and like it sounds like, oh, I was reading my concordance for a few hours the other day. Uh, No, I I looked this definition up because I was was like, man, do we understand what it means to rebuke? And the definition blew my mind. So I'm going to read it directly as it says it in the concordance. To rebuke as a verb signifies to put honor upon. That catch anyone funny? To rebuke as a verb signifies to put honor upon. Like, I, I wish I was, I was like, yes, I've known this for my whole life. I, I found that out this week. I'm so excited to share it with you this morning. To rebuke is to put honor upon. Honor being derived from the root to be heavy, hence to weigh down upon someone, to exert pressure upon them, to judge, to find fault with, to rebuke. What this means is the word that we're seeing in this text is quite literally, it is a heavy thing to rebuke someone. It's heavy. It's a heavy thing to rebuke a brother or sister. You want them to feel the weight of their sin. That's what you're doing when you rebuke them. The word itself is a pressing upon and a weightiness. You want them to feel the weight of their sin because apparently from their actions, they're not feeling the weight of their sin. Paul Tripp talks about how our view of ourselves is is as accurate as a carnival mirror, and we need other brothers and sisters in Christ to hold up that mirror of the word so that we can actually know where we're at. So if someone lovingly rebukes you, don't call them crazy. Look at this and say, well, maybe I'm not seeing it the way I am. In a rebuke, you want the person to feel the weight of their sin, and rather than a rebuke being unloving, according to this verse, it's an honor, an honor. You may not feel that way. You're like, well, I was thinking about the last time I was rebuked. I didn't feel real honored. Guest of honor at dinner. No, no, no. I didn't feel that way. It's an honor. You're in fact honoring them when you rebuke them in their sin. Or to put it another way, when your brother or sister rebukes you because of your sin, before you get angry with them, consider that they are honoring you. It is much easier not to rebuke someone. If there was like a Christian path where I didn't have to rebuke anyone, I would probably take it but there's not. It's an honor when you rebuke someone or when you are being rebuked by a faithful brother or sister. And look what the verse says next. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You honor that person in the rebuke. And upon repentance, you honor that person in the forgiveness. This is what it means to forgive as the Lord has forgiven. And to understand it even more, keep reading. It says this, and if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, count them, saying, I repent, I repent, I repent, I repent, I repent, I repent, brother, I repent, seven times is what this text says. And there's another one that says 70 times seven. I'm not gonna do it 490 times, but you get the point. If he comes to you and he repents, saying seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must. It's not optional. You must. 
Not negotiable. I look at this and I can't help but think, if someone just keeps sinning over and over and over and over and over and over and over again against me, am I really expected to forgive them? And God says, yes, just as I've forgiven you. That should be sobering to us. You're too high up on your own throne and your own little kingdom? I'll give you twice. Really? God says start with seven, multiply it by 70. Remember how you sin against him. Seven times. I'm sorry I did that five more times or six more times since I first repented this morning after the first time. And I'm supposed to forgive them. The Lord says yes, as I've forgiven you. Grace is forgiving the repentant. Turn to John 20. This will be our last text to engage this morning. John 20, verses 21 through 23 says this. This this is Jesus appearing to his disciples. This is the first time he appears to them after the resurrection. So it says previously in the text that they are in a locked room and the door is locked because they're scared of the Jews because their king has just been crucified days before. So this is the Sunday and Jesus is resurrected. They're still full of fear. They're still behind locked doors. And Jesus goes to them and he says this. Of all the things he could say in that moment, this is what Jesus says in verse 21, John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I'm going to read that again. Some of your Bibles have red letters to make it very clear that Jesus is speaking. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He's speaking to his ambassadors and his representatives who will be sharing his gospel with the entire world. And that's what he says. Why would God mention withholding forgiveness if it wasn't something that we were at times supposed to do for the sake of his kingdom? Why would God mention withholding forgiveness if it wasn't something at times that we were supposed to do for the sake of rightly representing grace and the gospel and why he resurrected from the dead in the first place? Don't be guilty of withholding forgiveness at the wrong time. Yet, don't be guilty of granting forgiveness when it should be withheld. Consider that this is what Jesus said to his disciples after he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. This is a critical moment. The fact that God is talking about forgiveness means it's important to get it right or it's important not to get it wrong. I feel like I have gotten forgiveness and maybe even gospel and blessing. These are all things that throughout my Christian life are regularly being clarified. It's so easy to get these things wrong. I was telling Lindsay, I was like, I wish I could preach this sermon with all new terms because we're we're talking about terms that are so familiar and they come with so much baggage. When I say forgiveness, repentance, gospel, we all have a laundry list of other things that come to mind. But when someone says forgiveness, withholding it is not something that comes to mind. But when it comes to forgiveness, I've only got two options, grant it or withhold it. And so we have to be sober in this, and we have to hear God saying, this is an important thing. I'm resurrected. Let's get forgiveness right. 
And from what he says, we can conclude that keeping in step with the Spirit will sometimes mean withholding forgiveness. Keeping in step with the Spirit will sometimes mean withholding forgiveness, and it is only, only, only withheld when there is no repentance. To grant forgiveness without repentance is to get out of step with the Holy Spirit. This is difficult, is it not? Are you not wrestling with with relationships in your own mind right now? This is difficult. Nobody is eager to withhold forgiveness from someone that they love. No one's eager to withhold forgiveness from someone that they call brother or sister. No one's eager to do that. If you are, you may have an angry, unloving spirit if you're eager to withhold forgiveness. It's not something that we're very excited about doing. It's like church discipline. If you love that process, you're crazy. It's the hardest thing you'll ever go through. So here, it is only withheld when there's no repentance. To grant forgiveness without repentance is to get out of step with the Holy Spirit. No one's eager to withhold it, but if we forgive someone, consider this, if we forgive someone when there's no repentance, it may be because we care more about our relationship with that person than we care about that person's relationship with God. I'll say it again, when you grant repentance or forgiveness, When you grant forgiveness, when there's no repentance, it may very well be because you care more about your relationship with that person than you care about that person's relationship with God and, frankly, about your relationship with God. The right weights need to be in the right place. The right priorities need to be in line when we're Christians. If they say, I repent, you forgive them. Not negotiable. But if they do not listen, you take one or two others with you. And if they still refuse to listen, even then, you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, you let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So even on the seventh, I repent, you forgive. But if they refuse to listen, you misrepresent the gospel by not faithfully walking through Matthew 18. God's very specific about it. The goal is repentance. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is restoration of someone's relationship with God and and y'all's relationship. That's a good goal. I'm eager for that when when there is sin that is not being repented of. That's what we want. I want this to be the way it should be. That's a good goal. But if you refuse to rebuke biblically, and if you forgive someone prematurely, you may, well very, you may very well get in the way of true repentance. If you offer up forgiveness when there's no repentance and, and you, you prematurely forgive someone, you may be the one getting in the way of their repentance and reconciliation and restoration. Our God is holy, and that is why he is so serious about sin and about holiness. This isn't about us trying to just keep squeaky clean, squeaky clean lives and no one can, can do anything bad. Or No, no, we're all gonna do things bad. All of us have sinned. All of us are going to sin, but we walk in this very carefully because we love each other and we love God first and foremost. If we share a gospel with another person or if we travel abroad and share the gospel with someone who's never heard it and we leave out the part about repentance, we're not really sharing the gospel. If we say to someone, are you a sinner? And they say yes, and we just say, you're forgiven. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel that John the Baptist proclaimed, the the baptism of repentance. 
It is the gospel to convince them of their sin, to honor them in such a manner that you want them to feel the weight of it and urge them to repent and make for dang sure that they know the beauty of forgiveness that exists in Christ.